0: the young ones in your life on an unforgettable journey that will get them excited about the Word of God with the Airship Genesis Kids Study Bible. Then continue the adventure with monthly audio adventures on airshipgenesis.com. Plus, download the Airship Genesis mobile game where kids will travel back in time to the life of Jesus. Blast off with the young one in your life at airshipgenesis.com. In a culture that caters to mankind's inclination to tear down and destroy, Christians are called to stand in stark contrast. How well are you doing? Today on Turning Point, Dr. David Jeremiah offers tools to help you fulfill the Bible's command for Christians to be a force for building up and encouragement. From living with confidence in a chaotic world, here's David to introduce his message Stay Constructive. Well, friends, we
1: are studying the New Testament in a little different way. We're, we're looking at the Scriptures that go along with the Lord's predictions concerning His coming. And um, today we're going to talk about being constructive, building others up. This is a wonderful lesson because... Uh, Unfortunately, there are many Christians who major in tearing people down. So we need to have some lessons once in a while on building people up. That whole process is called edification, which means to build. An edifice is a building, so we edify by building up people. That's the title of the message, Stay Constructive, and it's our lesson for today and Monday. We'll get to it in just a moment. I hope you're having a good week, and your growth in the Lord Jesus Christ is encouraging you as you study the Word of God with us. We're so thankful to just be an encouragement to you every day by opening the Scriptures together. And uh, during the month of April, we have made available to all of you This book that has just been revised and updated, it's called Living with Confidence in a Chaotic World, Certain Hope in Uncertain Times. It's yours for the asking when you send a gift of any size to turning point. That's right. Do your best. Give the best gift you can. But whatever God tells you to send, you send it. And be sure and ask for the book on confidence, and we'll send it to you. This 230-page softcover book, um, well, it can— It can help you live with unshakable confidence, and that's what we want you to do. We want you to know that during the uncertainty of these days, you don't have to be uncertain about your relationship with Jesus Christ. Ask for this book when you send your gift today, and we'll make sure you get it just as quickly as we can turn it around and get it back into your hands. Right now, let's begin part one of the third message in this series— Today, we're going to talk about how to stay constructive. Well, this is the third in the series of messages we've called Living with Confidence in a Chaotic World. So far, we've talked about how important it is to stay calm and stay compassionate. And today, we want to talk about how we can stay constructive You know, atheism in our country has started to take over the buses. I don't know if you've noticed it or not, but for instance, lately in New York, they've been chugging past the Empire State Building, bearing 12-foot-long signs announcing, you don't have to believe in God. Thousands of people in Chicago are getting on and off buses emblazoned with a similar message. The message says, in the beginning, man created God. And in Indiana, the bus banners say, You could be good without God. In other American cities, the buses are wrapped in this message. Why believe in God? Just be good for goodness sake. Another slogan gives this bit of atheistic reassurance. Don't believe in God. You're not alone. It's really hard to believe this is happening in our country. But it's not just in America alone that this atheistic message is being repeated. Over in Genoa, Italy, people are bouncing around in vehicles that declare the bad news is that God does not exist. And the good news is that you do not need him. Now, let me see if I've got this straight. The atheists are actually admitting that their core teaching is bad news. And then there's the slogan of the original atheistic bus campaign in London. It said, there's probably no God Now stop worrying and enjoy your life. So see if you get this the way I do. Let me rephrase this the way I read it. There's probably no God, so your life has no ultimate meaning. There's probably no God, so you came from sludge and you're returning to dust. There's probably no God, so you can never be forgiven of your sins. There's probably no God, so good luck dealing with your problems. There's probably no God, so you'll never see your loved ones in heaven. There's probably no God, so live for fun and die in despair. There's probably no God, so you see there's no hope. There's no life. There's no grace. And there's no heaven. I don't know who'd want to live that message, let alone advertise it. For that matter, I've really never met anyone who could actually prove that God doesn't exist. There are no true atheists. Nevertheless, as we look around today and see what's happening, there's this new aggressive kind of in-your-face brand of atheism that is gaining millions of adherents around the world. Atheism, you see, finds its voice because our culture has become totally secularized and secularization is not neutral. It's inherently anti-Christian, and there's nothing constructive about secularization or atheism. Look at what happened in the 20th century through the influence of the most famous atheists in the world. Who were they? There were Lenin, and Stalin, and Hitler, and Mosidong, and without God, All they did was tear down, and that's all you can ever do without God. With Christ, we're in the business of building up. So as Christians, and we're trying to figure out how to live with confidence in these chaotic days, as we face these perilous times, our message should be fresh and positive and exciting and energetic and eminently constructive. Let's go back and see if we can get a balance on this. Back in the Old Testament, there's a beautiful passage about the shifting seasons of life. One of its statements is this, Ecclesiastes chapter three. There is a time to tear down and there's a time to build up. Within living memory, we've seen both. Half a century ago, there was a time to build up. I remember reading not long ago an author by the name of Stephen Ambrose who wrote extensively about the Second World War and the generation of young men who returned from that war. Ambrose's father came home from the war, put up a backboard and a whole squad of ex-GIs from the neighborhood came over regularly to play basketball. Ambrose never remembered their last names, but he did remember the scars on their arms and on their chest, and as he reflected on their accomplishments, he wrote these words. Listen. But in fact, these were the men who built modern America. They had learned to work together in the armed services in World War II. They had seen enough destruction. They wanted to construct, so they built the interstate highway system and the St. Lawrence Seaway, the suburbs. The suburbs so scorned by the sociologists, so successful with the people. They had seen enough killing and they wanted to save lives. They licked polio. They made other revolutionary advances in medicine. They had learned in the armed forces the virtues of solid organization and teamwork and the value of individual initiative, inventiveness, and responsibility. They developed the modern corporation while inaugurating revolutionary advances in science and technology, education, and public policy. These men, said Ambrose, labored. They filled their station wagons and their ranch-style homes with children, and they retired. Perhaps they really are the greatest generation. That was a time to build up. But then, of course, came the time to tear down. You've lived through that time and and so have I. Decades of national division, future generations are going to look back at us and they're going to see a season of wanton destruction. From top leadership all the way down to the man on the street, we've been about the business of demolition rather than construction. We've become adept at poisoning the wells of culture, of politics and of business and spirituality For reasons unknown, we've begun tearing down everything between ourselves and the horizon. We've torn down integrity. We've torn down purity. We've torn down honesty and respect and national pride. We've torn down ideals and dreams, and we've torn down our sense of shame. We've torn down political aspirations, We've torn down everything we began to build at the birth of our nation. We began the new millennium with terrorism on our own soil, with high school shootings, and with dramatic rollbacks of traditional and moral boundaries. We shouldn't be surprised. If we read our Bibles, we know this has been the prophecy that was delivered. In fact, it was Paul who tells us not to be surprised at what we're currently experiencing. Eugene Peterson's paraphrase puts it this way, 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 5. Listen, don't be naive. There are difficult times ahead. As the end approaches, people are going to be self-absorbed, money-hungry, self-promoting, stuck-up, profane, contemptuous of parents, crude, coarse, dog-eat-dog, dog, unbending, slanderers, impulsively wild, savage, cynical, treacherous, ruthless, bloated windbags, <laughs> addicted to lust, and allergic to God. They'll make a show of religion, but behind the scenes, they're animals, so stay clear of these people. I didn't write it, I didn't make it up. It's the paraphrase of Second Timothy chapter three, and it speaks Poignantly of the days in which you and I are living. I realize it's easy to let this all discourage us. We could throw up our hands and some people are doing that today. They're simply quitting. But that is not a godly attitude and according to the scriptures in a time of tearing down we are to be about the work of building up. In a destructive world we are to maintain constructive attitudes. It won't surprise you, I'm sure, if you know anything about the Bible, to learn that a lot of tearing down and building up have occurred in almost every generation, including the days of the Bible. For instance, there had been a time of tearing down in the life of the apostle Peter. He had watched his Lord arrested and taken for execution. That alone almost tore his life apart. But to make things worse, he himself had failed the most basic test of love, and that is loyalty. Even with a prediction from Jesus that should have served as a warning, Peter had denied his affiliation with his wonderful master not one time, but three times. In spite of our Lord's patient preparation of his impetuous disciple, Peter was constantly demonstrating the frayed fabric of his life. Time and time again, Peter proved that without Jesus, he was nothing, and now, at this particular moment in his life, it looked like he would once again be a fisherman. No more teachers, no more dreams. Peter's life had been so torn down that there was nothing left. In the comforting simplicity of the net and the sea spray, Peter thought back to the last time he had been a serious fisherman, The master had come along way back then, as you remember, recorded in the Gospels, and had come to Peter and others and said to them, follow me. And Peter had seen, as the result of that, an incredible catch of fish, and he knelt before his teacher, and he said, Luke chapter five, verse eight, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. That experience had been a tearing down as well a time of his humbling and a confrontation with his own unworthiness. Even so, Jesus had wanted him and he had followed and Jesus had said to Peter, do not be afraid, Peter. From now on, you will catch men. Follow me, that's what Jesus had said. That's what Peter had done. And now having failed the Lord, he was just a fisher of fish again. I often think what it must have been like for Peter during those days knowing in his mind that he had failed the one who had loved him the most and who he had loved the most. He must have wondered in his following days if there would ever be any more. The final chapter of John's Gospel, however, gives us the postscript to that story. This man who had failed, who had failed so miserably, well, the Lord wasn't finished with him yet. Again, Jesus is going to say to Peter, follow me. This will be the final time. And again, Peter will drop his nets and go, and this time to the ascension, to Pentecost, to the building of the Jerusalem church, and all the way to Rome where he will die, according to tradition, as a martyr. No more a coward, but now the courageous man that Jesus had intended him to be. I don't know what there is about Peter, but we all love him, don't we? And why not? I mean, there is so much reality and so much humanity in this one soul that comes through the ancient pages of the scripture to make him so real. There is Peter who was the first to recognize Jesus as the Christ, and then there's Peter who denied he was even a friend, and there's Peter who stepped out of the boat, and Peter who almost drowned when his faith short-circuited. Jesus called him the rock one time, another time he called him Satan. (laughs) Peter was so much like us, sometimes one step forward and two steps back. He was a man of highs and lows, of mountains and valleys, and that's why he makes such a perfect study for times like these. And that's why John 21, the final chapter in the Gospels, is considered a kind of epilogue, and it contains the last words of the Savior before he ascended to heaven. Jesus is completing a conversation with Peter And once again, he is going to foretell what lies ahead of this man, just as he had done back in the Gospels. Read with me from John chapter 21 and verse 18. Jesus says to Peter, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and you went wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. On the night of his arrest, Jesus had correctly predicted an act of cowardice. Now he predicts an act of courage. He is saying that Peter will reach his older years, but that he will die with his hands outstretched. A euphemism for what Jesus had been through. A picture, if you will, of crucifixion. And if you study history, you know that's exactly what happened to Peter. He was crucified by his own request upside down because he did not feel himself worthy to be crucified in the same way as his master had been. But now that Peter is a fallen disciple, now he's about to hear the last words of our Lord, once again he will hear these words from Jesus, follow me. As this exchange occurs, Peter notices that someone else is already following. According to John twenty one twenty, Peter turns and he sees the disciple whom Jesus loved. And this is John, of course, because John is the one who is described in the Gospels as the disciple that Jesus loved. But Peter still hasn't learned his lesson, and so he turns to the Lord, and he points to John, and he says, but Lord, what shall this man do? And the Lord, even in the quietness of this moment, and while he is trying to minister to his apostle, turns stern for just a moment, and he says, If I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you, Peter? You must follow me. Jesus' final words to Peter were these. You must follow me. I wanted to begin right there today, framing the story for this message. But I want to go back and examine, if I might, that fascinating conversation that led up to this moment in Peter's life back in John 18 we find the disciples in crisis and Jesus has been arrested and two disciples have followed at a distance one loving and loyal John will follow all the way to the cross and the other Peter he's going to experience another relapse of doubt Peter is always near and yet so far He's followed Jesus to the point at which his courage fails, and beside a fire where peasants warm their hands, a stranger voices the very question which Peter is really asking of himself. The stranger says, aren't you one of Jesus' disciples? And Peter hears himself say, I am not. And worst of all, the growing suspicion in his heart is that he is telling the truth. He is not a disciple. He's given two more chances to correct it and he does not. I'm sure if you're honest, you've been there as I have, doing or saying something wrong, feeling the sting of conviction, hearing the voice inside of us asking, you are one of his disciples, are you not? We also know that our first act of disobedience can become a slippery slope that sometimes turns into an avalanche. That's what happened to Peter. And now, at the end of his life, there's another fire, and there's another time where Peter is soul-searching, and finally, in desperation, he says to his friends, I'm going fishing, and their fishing trip in John 21 ends up almost exactly like the one did in Luke chapter 5. Soon, they're catching so many fish, and they're spilling over the nets. And Actually, in this occasion, John actually counted them. So there's a campfire, a breakfast, a reunion, there's laughter, probably a lot of questions. 3 times Jesus asks Peter, "Do you love me?" and Peter answers in the affirmative. But watch carefully what's in the text. He uses the word love in our Bibles as we read them all 3 times, but in the first 2 questions, the word love is the word agape, the most Powerful word for unconditional love, the supreme sacrificial love word. Peter, do you really love me with the love of God? And each time that Jesus asks Peter that question, he answers with a different word. He says, Lord, you know I'm fond of you. Jesus asks Peter again, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? And Peter once again says, Lord God, you know I'm fond of you We've all been there, haven't we? Searching our own souls and asking ourselves, do we really love God or are we just fond of him? Finally, the last question, the Lord God accommodates himself to Peter's level of discipleship and he says to Peter, Peter, are you really even fond of me? That all had happened back there in Luke, back in the early experience. Now it's happening again. Again. And now, once again, Peter is being asked about his relationship with God. Interesting, in this passage of scripture, we often stop here. This is the core message of John 21, but there's so much more, because after Peter responds to our Lord's three questions, the Lord Jesus gives him some instruction. And the instruction that he gives to Peter is at the very core of what it means to be constructive. Three times Jesus speaks to the spirit of Peter and says to him, Peter, if you really do love me, let me tell you what to do. He said, Peter, if you're my disciple, here's my command to you. I want you to feed my lambs. And the second time he says to Peter, not only do I want you to feed my lambs, I want you to tend my sheep. And then finally he says, feed my sheep and sort of combines the two of them together. What is Jesus saying to Peter? He's saying, Peter, it's not about some abstract love that you claim to have and how that love might be measured on some scale. Peter, what I want to know is do you love me enough to do what I've called you to do? Do you love me enough to minister to my people, to build my people? And Jesus adds the final commandment at the end of this and he says, follow me. Mm. Amen. Amen. Well, we have to take a break for the weekend now, and it gives me the opportunity to give you my little Friday speech, if you will, about your being in church. Never has that been more important than it is now. Um, Most of us are back in church. Some of you who were in church have not come back because you have found it more comfortable to stay at home. And, you know, the Bible tells me that I'm a pastor, so I comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. And so uh, if you're comfortable staying home, I want you to be afflicted as you think about the weekend. You need to be in church. Church isn't stay at home. Church is gathering. And uh, our churches are so important during these days. Uh, we are in full, full bloom at Shadow Mountain uh, in, a, in a place where it hasn't always been acceptable. We know this is God's purpose for our life, and I hope it is that for you as well. Have a great weekend. Turning Point is on television in many of the places where you live. You can watch us on some of the major networks in this country. And um, most of all, I just want to encourage you to go to church. Now... Over the weekend, you'll have time to order this book that we've been telling you about. The book is called How to Live with Confidence in a Chaotic World. This 230-page book is yours for the asking when you send a gift to Turning Point, and uh, we'll send it to you right away, perhaps in time for you to even have it before the series is finished on the radio. But it's our lifeline. Your gifts are what keep us going and keep the Word of God circulating around the world. So thank you in advance. and. Tretch, you'll have a great weekend at church with your family. We'll see you back here on Monday for the next daily edition of Turning Point.
0: For more information on Dr. Jeremiah's series, Living with Confidence in a Chaotic World, please visit our website, where you'll also find two free ways to help you stay connected. Our monthly magazine, Turning Points, and our daily email devotional. Sign up today at davidjeremiah.ca slash radio. That's davidjeremiah.ca slash radio. Or call us at 800 946 4300. When you do, ask for your copy of David's book, Living with Confidence in a Chaotic World, and start living with a greater certainty in these uncertain times. The book is yours for a gift of any amount. You can also download the free Turning Point mobile app for your smartphone or tablet. Or search in your app store for the keywords, Turning Point Ministries, to access our programs and resources. Get all the details when you visit our website, davidjeremiah.org slash radio. This is David Michael Jeremiah. Join us Monday as we continue living with confidence in a chaotic world on Turning Point with Dr. David Jeremiah.
1: and be in prayer. A Yiddish proverb says, God gives burdens, but also shoulders. And I see a double meaning in that proverb. First, the Apostle Paul wrote that God gives grace to escape any temptation and bear any burden. Instead of removing the temptation or burden, God gives us the ability to escape it or bear it on our own shoulders. But we can also think of shoulders as God's, not ours. Moses reminded the Israelites that God had carried them through the wilderness as a man carries his son. If you've ever carried a child on your shoulders, you have the perfect picture of how God sometimes carries us. This is David Jeremiah encouraging you to get on the road to new life. Discover God's shoulders on Route 66 route 66 driving the word home log on to route 66 life.com start your journey home today